strictly waves with Bert and Hayes. We lift the weights and go on dates. And we are mates that educate and conversate. And it's our podcast. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to Weekly Weights. My name's Will. With me is Alex. And it's episode 80. And... We're doing a and a which means today is the Q and eighty. What do you think of that, Alex? Awesome. I'm very, very happy with that. <laughs> but also, you microphone. forgot you forgot to say Kablamo. Uh, slash Kablamady? Kablady? <laughs> they can nah, wait for that rubbish. one. Um anyway, it's it's the Q and eighty. Um <laughs> But before we get into that, I have something that's annoyed me about social media this week. I spent a whole week thinking about what's annoyed me. It's not a very healthy way to live your life, by the way. Um, it's not very hard to get annoyed on social media, though. No, it's not. And um, this is actually an old pet hate. So, Alex, you'll know that I dislike this. And I actually know that you dislike this as well. And it's a problem that is most rife in the fitness industry. It's the misuse of apostrophes. Um, Deads. Yeah. Dead apostrophe, yes. You know, that one I can almost understand because it's a contraction of deadlifts. So, like, if you were truly pedantic grammatically, you could make that argument, but nobody who's doing that knows that. Like, yeah, deads are deads. Like the plural, no apostrophe. Sundays are Sundays, the plural, no apostrophe. If you were saying Sunday is my favorite day, like Sunday is my favorite day, apostrophe. If you were saying on something. Su- on Sundays, something, we do something. Yeah. No apostrophe. No apostrophe. If you are saying that Sunday owns something, you know, um, what is it like? Sunday's beer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That is the beer of Sunday. Appropriate time to use an apostrophe. But like, can we just be better as an industry? Because I find it really hard to take people who might otherwise have good ideas seriously if they type like their full fucking English second language. Yeah. If your caption is seven paragraphs and it's riddled with grammatical errors... I'm not reading it. Like, I just applaud your enthusiasm, but also don't read it. Um, anyway, that's snobby, but really, really irksome. Yeah, can issue any, anyone tell that Will went to private school? <laughs> I did go to private S apostrophe cool. Uh, <laughs> it's the Q and 80. But before we get into that, actually, Alex, we had a very important discussion today. Yes, we did. We said, basically, what is the best squat of all time? And the reason we asked why, like, what the best squat of all time was, was because a squat that I don't think deserves to be in the mix might be in the mix as of the weekend. Actually, what I just said is kind of unfair. It was last night. So, Dave Hoff totaled 1,400 kilos, 1,410 kilos. Which is extraordinary. uh, With a 579 kilo squat. 1,400 kilos, what's that in pounds? Um, Did you say 1,420? 1,410. 1410 that's got to be well north of 3000 yeah it, it is 3102 crazy total to be fair i saw one of his squats last night because i think um noriega was sharing stuff from that meet on his instagram story and compared to the squat i think his 1200 pound squat that that everybody got really up in arms over for its depth the squats he was doing were like somewhat reasonable although i'd hazard that they were high but a number of the other squats that were getting white lights in that meet just 
were like ashamed to powerlifting. Yeah, in as, my opinion. As far as multiplier goes, it was actually reasonable. Yeah. Um, and the like weight's how, being lifted. How much deeper can you really squat in all that gear? Like, I, I, I honestly don't know. Well, again, I personally don't know either. I'm like, I'm not sure whether you're asking. It can't be physically impossible. Like, it's not. Otherwise, you're saying the suit has enough tensile strength to literally prevent you going down with like 570 kilos on your back, which is just not true. Yeah, it's fair. Um, but whether a stance such as his allows him to, you know, um, when you have that much suit support and probably not that much hip mobility maybe not I don't he, know he clearly has quite a bit of hip, hip mobility oh he's got extraordinary he, hip mobility he pulls sumo and squats so wide like mm. he's clearly got enough either way he squatted 570 kilos 570 579 I think it was so like yeah 579 absolutely wild huge respect again I would say questions over the depth but as just a general feat of strength can take absolutely nothing away from that crazy but when we spoke about that the first thing alex said is well ray williams's 490 raw in sleeves is the best squad of all time and i don't think that that's a bad starting point but then we started listing a whole bunch of other really cool squats didn't we alex yeah so should we go through each one and provide a case and then each decide who wins yeah, or at least just briefly some recap context, them. Some yeah. context of each one. Okay, so we just spoke about Dave Hoff, multiplier, super heavyweight, 579 kilos. Crazy. Absolutely ridiculous. Biggest squat in kilos of all time. Um, and then we've got Vlad Alhazov from Pro Raw two years ago, I think it was. Yeah, I think so. So he squatted 505 kilos in just knee wraps um, out of a minor lift with a 25 kilo squat bar. Yeah, his background was actually in equipped lifting as well. I think he was a multiply lifter. And he'd had, I think, I want to say that he'd had some really bad injury as well. And so he'd had some time off. I'm not 100% certain on the injury, but I am certain that he used to lift in gear. Apparently, he wants to get back into the gear soon too. So he might give Hoff's record a shake. Well, just on pure, like, raw strength, phenomenal. Yeah, so 505 in wraps, super heavyweight, out of a monolift. Um, and then we've got Ray Williams, 490 in the IPF, in knee sleeves, walked out and on an Alico bar. That was, I think, last year as well. Uh, I think the Arnold last year. Yeah, sounds right. Um, and then we've got Zahir Kadyrov. Yep. What was his squat? Was it 440 at 125? Is that what it was? 80 at 125. Is that, what he, is that really it? Yeah, look up on... It's on Barband. Um, Zahir Kadyrov. So... So he did the legendary, um, he did the legendary 505 kilo training squat, which is awesome. But um, here you go, Barbend, Finland-based powerlifter Zahir just broke his world squat record with a phenomenal lift of 480 kilos, aka 1,058 pounds, in knee wraps and a Harris singlet um, at the Finnish national championships. 480 kilos. That was 2017. So, and that's at 125 kilos body weight. That's pretty. Yeah, that's crazy. up there. So um, that's only. 25 kilos behind Vlad at yes. about 50 odd kilos lighter than Vlad. Yeah. So like pretty crazy in that context. Okay. And then I, on here, I've added a few from the IPF. Yeah. So just recently, Russ Orhi, 313 and a half at 83. I think that that's an extraordinary squat, obviously. It's world record. However, there are actually a few people in his weight class who are very close to him. I think the other ones we've said now are like 
more or less untouchable. Right? Well, I think there's only one guy who's over three three hundred, who's at three hundred five. So eight and a half kilos, yeah, he's like relatively close. Well, but, but I mean, even Nathan Tannis from Australia squatted three hundred. Three hundred five, he did actually. Three hundred five, yeah. right? Brett Gibbs has squatted three hundred, correct? Not in a meet, he's on two ninety eight and a half. Right. So, but like I said, there's a couple of people who are like, he's not thirty kilos better than the next but what, nearest person. What this squat? What makes this squat really good? Is it was his third, and he would missed his first two on depth, so it was to stay in the meet as well. Did he? Did he jump to three thirteen? He second was the same, right? The same weight. Good grief! So pretty ballsy. Yeah, it was actually probably still pretty high, but <laughs> okay. Yeah, go on. Um, so I've put Amanda Lawrence on here. You put Amanda. Oh, actually, you did. Yeah, I you said there's it, some chick that was... Okay, okay my... you thought her name was Daniela, which is obviously referring to Daniela Mello. I just and you said thought she was some in the 74 that, weight class, which doesn't even exist. I just said so, there's some chick that squats heaps, <laughs> and she's American. Yeah, so Amanda Lawrence, uh, just recently at USAPL Nationals, 250 and a half at 84. Yeah, that's wild. Which is crazy, crazy. Which the is person I was thinking a, of was Daniela Mello, who'd squat, who she squatted 230 at Worlds. Um, and it didn't look that hard and squatted 232 in training recently. I don't know if just none of her squats look hard, but like she's also extraordinary and she is in the weight class below, correct? No, she's in the same weight class same as weight Amanda. Class. So Amanda yeah. beat her at Worlds on body weight. Right. Yep, so they're in, they're in the same weight class. But yeah, Amanda's like 20-odd kilos ahead of the next person in that weight class, which is pretty, pretty considerable. Um, and then I've got uh, Mariana from Russia who squatted 260 in wraps at 56 body weight. Yep. Which is... This is probably my winner. Yeah. Um, absolutely ridiculous. Like That's roaring in wraps. Roaring wraps. Um, yeah, 260 at 56. Yeah, nuts. And there's another there's another relatively lightweight woman, I believe one lighter, Wing... Wailing, Wailing. Wailing. Yeah. Um, what did she squat? Because this was one that immediately came to mind for me. So the best thing about this was... Um, the circumstances. So, if you're listening to this and you want to see this squat, just look up Wailing two ten kilo, two hundred ten kilos. So she squatted two ten at forty seven, which is the lightest open weight class in the IPF, um, in single ply. And she actually had to walk it out a couple of times. Mm. And she was like, you could tell on her face she was in so much pain because her knee wraps were so tight. She was like struggling to walk, and then she she smoked it. It was sick. Yeah, I rem- she was like screaming when she got off the platform. I remember seeing the footage of it for the first time and just being like blown away by that. So that was a crazy squat too. Um, and then we got Blaine Sumner five oh five, uh, in single play. Mm-hmm. I think this one actually has a case for being the best of all time as well. Um, although I think if we the circumstances that we grant this one being the best of all time make Ray squat better too, so Ray probably pips him. Um, the reason that I th- the reason that I find this so impressive is I'm certain that Blaine Sumner could squat like I don't know 50 kilos more if he was able to use a thick squat bar because the thing that he's finding most difficult when he squats with the IPF spec bars is just the amount of oscillation that starts occurring when he walks it out and so when you watch him in training he's routinely hitting squats of you know similar weights to that you know not really 500 but he's like in the 440 plus range like regularly right and um and the thing that limits him he says is the bar oscillation so when he did that squat you could see how much instability there was and then he just stood it up and it was great you know well then how does 
you know, that's only 15 kilos more than what Ray did and mm. Ray's never complained about the bar. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying when I say that I think that makes Ray's squat all the more Or is that just, well. is that roughly 500 kilos? Is that like the tipping point for what an Aleko bar can handle? I truly don't know. But, but I, yeah, I would bet that if you gave him a, a proper squat bar, that he could squat 50 kilos more. Maybe. Like, um, that I guess that doesn't actually make that squat itself better, but it does add some context to just how crazily impressive it is because he's, he's actually fighting against the gear when he does that very much. And possibly, again, I don't, actually, I don't think this is a very good argument. I was going to say that being in equipment makes walking out that type of squat very, very hard, especially with the oscillation because he's going to have less control and less proprioception and stuff around his knees. And he's also going to have less room for error to still get the most out of his suit. Whereas a, like a raw squat is slightly more fluid. I'm not sure that that would necessarily be easier with instability. Yeah, I would, I would suggest that the suit creates more stability and less like potential for additional movement, which should make you more stable, right? Yeah, well, that's why I say it's maybe not the strongest argument because I think that that is true. But I also think that any positional errors, and this is just like what Natalie Hansen said to us when we were talking, any positional errors in your suit are going to be super-duper magnified. So there is certainly something very, very impressive to me about that squat. That was crazy. Okay, so who's your winner, Will? I still think Ray, but I don't think by much. Um, Like, as in, I think all of those squats that we mentioned are worthy of being in the discussion. I still think Ray's is the best of all time. Um, and if I had to round out maybe a top three or four, then I think Blaine's would be up there. Um, was it Wei? I always forget her name. Wailing. Yeah, Wailing would be up there as well. They, they'd be my other ones that are really, really impressive to me. Massive IPF bias in that. Um, but yeah, those would be the ones that are really, really for me. Yeah, my, my top three would be Ray one, Mariana two, and... Uh, probably Vlad three. Vlad's was pretty crazy, but again, like I just don't know. When you look at Ray's squat, add fifteen kilos to it, give a guy knee wraps and a squat bar, like it's a pretty big step down to me. You know? Yeah, but it still is. Like no one else has squatted five hundred kilos raw. Yeah. Oh, well, that's true. Um, like even Milanovic, I think his best is like four eighty. I think that that's true. Or four ninety. Yeah, something like that. But again, Zahir did 505 in training. Sky high, but like it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> he was yelling kill the whole time. <laughs> it was so great. All right, um, let's get on to the Q&80. Yeah, the Q&80. All right, question one. We got a lot, guys, by the way, of pretty inane questions for this Q&A. So if we don't answer your question and on reflection you think it was really stupid, that's why. Although I did say bring the banter. So if that's your idea of banter... You need to have a one hard look at yourself in the mirror. <laughs> All right. Uh, I've got one um, that I'm, I'm going to forget if I don't do it first because it was sent to me in a DM because it was too long for the question box. It's okay. from Mags. Oh, okay, right. Um, do you learn anything from making this podcast? And also, what do you enjoy the most about it? Do I learn anything from making this podcast? Absolutely. In fact, that's something that off-air we've discussed with a lot of our guests um, who've come on when we thank them. Um, Particularly, we had a a good discussion about this with Eric Helms actually off air. Um, I learned heaps. I'm personally exposed to a whole lot of ideas that I haven't necessarily had myself. 
um, which is really good. And it makes me question aspects of my own practice, which is really, really good. Um, that's number one. Number two, being forced to articulate my thinking and my reasoning behind things that I do uh, makes me reflect on my own coaching a lot, which which helps me get better. So that really, really helps as well. Um, so do I learn stuff from this podcast? Literally every time I do it, even when I'm literally just shooting the breeze. Yes. Alex? Yeah, in- agreed completely. Um, I think the biggest thing that I've learned over the last year and a half is how much more there is to learn. Mm. And like when you expose yourself to new ideas, um, you kind of become like a complete novice in that field. And then you kind of realize like, you know, how much more growth you can make in certain fields and stuff. So I guess it's sort of widened my eyes to where I need to learn and what fields I need to learn in better. Yeah. And in fact, when we started this podcast, really how it started was that I wanted to do case studies on powerlifting coaching and said to Alex, I'd just record us talking and doing them and transcribe it. So we actually began with the objective of doing reflective practice to improve as coaches and then sort of said, YOLO, let's make a podcast because that's more fun. Yeah, you you initially wanted to do like it in article form. Yeah. And I was like, no, no I don't, I don't even read, read let alone write. So. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but again, we started actually with the intention of reflecting, learning and improving. So, so that's definitely been very much the case. And with respect to what you just said about how you expose yourself to things you didn't even know that you don't know, there's a concept. Um, I have no idea what the author's name is um, or actually on reflection, the name of the book. But there's a phrase I've heard um, a couple of times that came from his writings called, called like the adjacent possibles. And the idea is that like all good ideas are built off of off of prior knowledge and ideas that you have and so in order to find out something new and valuable you need to have like you know the foundation of other knowledge next to it that exposes that exposes new things that you don't know that you can go and discover and so on and i think one of the helpful things about us being exposed to fresh ideas from different people that highlight to us the things that we don't already know about is that it makes us think about the totality of our practice more and highlights the things that we need to pursue to get better as coaches. Yeah, yeah. and the other the other thing um, that I just thought of in listening to you here say hear that here listening to you say that will. Yeah, sorry, Alex, did you <coughs> like turn yourself off and on again or something? <laughs> yeah, um, was just that because we do this podcast, we have you know quite a few people who follow us and listen to us and who respect our opinion. Sometimes I don't know why, but sometimes <laughs> yeah, I was say that's we have mistake. more people ask us stuff. Yeah. So in 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 having that, we are then forced to explore, you know, those ideas if we don't have an, an answer for them. Yeah. Um, okay. um, what was the second part of the question was? What do you enjoy the most? Uh, um, chiefly the jingle. <laughs> <laughs> what do you enjoy the most? Uh probably like the handful of times that someone that I didn't know has come up to me and said, "I listen to your podcast and I really like it." So it's purely an ego trip. Hundred percent. Um. <laughs> that no that's actually quite rewarding i um what do i enjoy the most um yeah probably the yeah probably the couple of times i've had discussions with people who i don't know who have listened to things that i've said and whether or not they agree it has made them think about something and form an opinion and we have an interesting discussion on the base on like that basis that to me is very rewarding because it means that like this stuff that Alex and I are doing is helping other people think and I'm getting something back from it. So it, feel, it feels nice when we do that. That's probably what I enjoy the most. 
Do you want to ask a proper question? Not a proper question. A question that was submitted via the form. Okay. Okay. From Jack Motivate. What have you found a more accurate predictor of success for a lifter? Work ethic or ability? Depressing answer. Definitely ability. Um, and I actually have a whole bunch of research with which I can back up saying that. Absolutely ability. However, you can have all the ability in the world, but unless you're actually willing to persist with lifting and stuff for a long time, you'll never reach your potential. Um, but yeah, I think, if, again, like think about Ray Williams. We've just sort of agreed that he did the best squat of all time. The difference between you, Jack Motivate, and Ray Williams... You're not Ray Williams. No. <laughs> Jack is a lot of things, but he's not Ray Williams. Um, the difference between you two is not just that Ray trains harder or even not that Ray trains harder at all. You know, you're a reasonably diligent trainee. Um, ability matters more in absolute terms um, for your achievement, but achieving your potential requires work ethic. So what your potential is, can't do much about it. Whether you achieve it, work ethic. Alex? Yeah, so the level of talent you have dictates your ceiling. So if you have... A low level of talent, you're gonna have a low level. You're gonna have a low ceiling. If you have a high level of talent, you're gonna have a high ceiling. But whether you reach that ceiling is determined by your work ethic. Um, if you have a moderate level of talent and a really really high work ethic, you can outperform someone with a really really high ceiling and a moderate work ethic. Yeah, totally. So true. I think in the short term, talent is talent wins out in the short term all the time. But if you have less talent but you continually work hard over and over again over the years, you can outwork someone with more talent yeah um so i said i had some research to back that up and just because i think this is kind of interesting and illustrative um so jps education are going to come out with a powerlifting coaching education course alex and i have both contributed some content for it one of my lectures was on individualization and when you look at training studies and the ones that show you the individual responses you see that some people just respond heaps, heaps better to a given training protocol than other people. So there's a couple of studies. I forget the name. I want to say Hubal was the lead author of one of them. I believe this one was done on bicep curls, although it might have been leg extensions because there's two similar studies that I spoke about. But they did something like 12 weeks of training. Um, oh, actually, this one might have been six months of training if it's the bicep curl one, but it doesn't matter. They did like a pretty reasonable time length of training. Um, doing a few sets of bicep curls on their non-dominant arm a couple times a week. And the average the average growth was something like 18% of cross-sectional area um, increases. Um, Alex is nodding. Like, they're reasonably robust gains. Um, but there were some people who gained three times that much in the same time period doing the same program. And some people who were measured as having very small losses in size, which probably just means no change. Like that's that's basically measurement error. But the point is, you give you give a whole bunch of people the same training protocol. Um, protocol. Some people gain three times more than um, more than average. Some people gain one third of it. In the study that I'm thinking about with leg extensions, um, there was really similar magnitudes of difference between the people who gained the most and the least. And two thirds of people fell pretty much smack in the middle so like you know if the average gains were 18 percent, two-thirds of people were falling between 12 and 24 but the outliers were still way out there um those aren't the exact numbers for that study but basically give a whole bunch of people the same programs the 
the the spread of results are going to be massively different. In another recent study by Hammerstrom, I hope I pronounced that correctly, um, they're some Scandinavian nationality, um, by Hammerstrom et al., they did a whole bunch of leg training um, two to three times a week, and they used it within subject designs. So they had one subject train one leg with one set per session or per exercise per session two or three times a week, and one... Um, one leg train three sets per exercise per session, again, two or three times a week. So one leg is doing three times the volume of the other leg. And what they wanted to see was both between and within subject variance in responses to that. So obviously once one leg total was doing about nine sets of leg work per week and one was doing about 27. And what they found was that in aggregate, tripling your volume increased the rate of gains for people which kind of makes sense. You go from a low, moderate volume to a quite high volume, you would expect that most people gain a little bit more muscle and strength. Um, But the degree to which they actually got better results by working harder varied enormously, right? And not only that, but the... um, So some people basically triple their volume, they get nearly no meaningfully better results. A few people actually got slightly worse, but the majority had either like, you know, neutral or slight improvements. Um... There was that, but also the absolute rate of gains were correlated with how much extra return you got from increasing the volume. So basically the people who grew the most from the least training also grew the most from the most training, right? So some people just respond way better. And when you actually look at the individual data points in that study, um, there were there were people who for doing 27 sets of leg training per week on one leg made whatever it was, like 3% gains in cross-sectional area in 10 or 12 weeks, right? And there were other people who were doing nine sets. So on the leg that did the least over the same time period gained 12%. So literally made four times the gains that somebody else was making doing three times the work. And like, you know, you can quibble about whether it was just because the program was, you know, most or least optimal for a given individual, but those giant discrepancies in gains, right? There's not much you can do about it. If it just happens that you respond really, really well to training or really poorly to training, you can't change much about your rate of gains, but you can change your application. So whilst your potential and the degree to which you adapt from training um, is outside of your control, and it's probably going to be the greatest determinant of whether you become super duper jacked up within any reasonable time frame and super duper strong, um, you can't control it. You can control your work ethic. And so I think focusing on that is the most useful thing. But at the end of the day, like you don't become Ray Williams just by outwork, hashtag lane. You you become Ray Williams by being born Ray Williams and working really fucking hard. Yeah, so Jack, just for you, Ray, Ray Williams would still squat more than you if he didn't train. <laughs> yeah, well, he definitely would. That's the um, Actually, Stronger by Science, who we hate. Eric Helms, was it? Uh, I can't remember. Um <laughs> we got we got to shelve the Eric Helms joke. It's funny, but I've actually had people message me to correct me. We know it's Eric <laughs> Trexler, guys. Um, so uh, the analogy that I th- I I'm actually not sure whether it was Greg or Eric has used a few times um, to talk about how much genetics matter is LeBron James. If I played basketball and I don't, <laughs> if I played basketball for five hours every day for the next fifteen years and LeBron James didn't touch a basketball, Alex, you know me well. 
Who do you think would win in a game of pickup, me or LeBron? You couldn't beat LeBron in any sport ever. Probably not, but that's the point, right? Is um, unfortunately, genetics really do matter. There's nothing you can do about it, and I don't think. Like, yeah, and, no, no level of working hard is going to make you six foot nine. No, and like give you the fast fit, much twist muscle fibers and the explosiveness and athleticism and like can confirm because I used to hang everything. from the ceiling every day to get taller. Did it work? No. <laughs> Look at me. I'm five eleven. I'm 5'11 dripping wet, Alex. 5'11. <laughs> anyway, that's enough of an answer to your question. Genetics. Sorry. Um, next one. Uh, should we go to another one from Jack? Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess this one's kind of related, which it's funny because my answer is the opposite. Would you rather train an athlete who's mentally stronger or physically stronger? Mentally. Yeah, same. So, um, I mean, Alex, you can give me your whys, but for me like although having people who are very very gifted is good because it's like everything you do works and you feel like a legend it works because they're super duper gifted um and they're still not going to achieve their potential unless they try really hard so it can be quite frustrating if you get people who are like really gifted but lackadaisical in their approach whereas when you get people who are just passionate and they graft and they get results and it's really meaningful for them as a coach that's really rewarding to me you know yeah it's the um it's the reaction of the athlete that you get back, which is what's rewarding. So, like, if you if you take someone from a 80-kilo squat to the first 100-kilo squat and they're absolutely stoked by it, they're going to be... They're going to give you more joy than taking someone who's super gifted to a 300-kilo squat, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, basically. So, um, basically, mentally stronger. And the other thing is, when somebody is really talented and not very persistent or just like quits or doesn't get to their potential you have this massive what could they have been conflict and it makes you sad it's a bit like what we were talking about with junior athletes quitting early um yeah you have you get a lot of disappointment because you see a lot of potential walk away but you know um people who make the most of what they have are really good fun to coach and usually people who work really really hard like provided they're not super high anxiety they also are just having a lot of fun because they're driven by passion like if they're not if they're not driven by the fact that they're super good and getting reward just by being good, then they're there because they want to be. Yeah, it's a good ex- a good example of this is like you look at your favorite sport team and they've always got the superstar who's super talented, often arrogant, sometimes doesn't try on the with the stuff that's like hard work. Yeah, LeBron, come at me, LeBron. <laughs> go on. He's a really hard worker, isn't he? Yeah, he's like dude. the constant <laughs> Yeah, he's the man. Yeah, go um, on. And then you get the guys on the team who are like the role players who just do all the dirty work and everyone loves them and they just like... They just make everyone around them try harder. That's the kind of people that you want to coach. Yeah, big time. Because also for them, it's like it's taken them so much more work to get to where they've gotten that they appreciate where they've gotten more. Big time. I agree with that. All right, next question. Go on. Do you want the scribbled out one? Sure. Is it good? All right, well, it is good. You'll like this. Okay. So Alex I sent will. me all these questions as a screenshot and he blanked one out because he said it was... No, no, you'll like this. Okay. All right. Um, will Berkman, will you do me the honour and be one of my groomsmen at my wedding? Oh, cute. Yeah, 100%. Sweet. Uh, that's it? That's it. Oh, that was really fucking anticlimactic. Yeah, sure, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> Did you submit that to yourself? No, no, no. Chrissy reminded me to, to ask you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That'll be the best. When's your wedding? Uh, like 18 months. Okay, I guess I'll come. Yeah, sure. Okay, mad. Just, means, go, we, just means we can't hire your band. 
uh, that's probably for the best. <laughs> you came to one of our gigs and apparently have opted out of every one. I came to two. Oh, yeah, that's true, actually. The respect. second one was too loud, that venue. Yeah, that, yeah well, we were just rocking, that's why. All right, it, was, yeah. it was just 40-year-olds who were loose. <laughs> that's the perfect audience, they tip. All right, yes, I'll, I'll be your groomsman. Thank you very much for asking. Thank you, Will. No, no worries at all. All right, next one. Do you want to ask it? Yeah, okay. Um... This one's from Chrissy Dask, um, who says, what are some specific circumstances where you believe that referring a client on is best protocol? Alex? Well, each uh, practitioner or exercise human has their own... <laughs> exercise human. Who are Fitness you? professional, Kelly I guess. Fitness... Subtle <laughs> or supple leopard. He's not human at all. Yeah. Every fitness professional has their own like set of skills. Every fitness professional is a human. Hmm so far yeah juggernaut AI is a robot <laughs> okay go on um, yeah every every fitness professional has their own set of skills and scope of practice which they should sometimes they can sometimes go outside of their scope provided it's not harmful to the individual that's so funny you can go out of your practice sometimes only, like, if it's okay only like only a little only bit outside like your scope. very slightly yeah go on um so, for instance, if for instance, Will, if you were training a powerlifter and then they turned around and said, "Hey, I don't want to do powerlifting anymore. I don't. I want to do weightlifting." Yeah. Can you coach me? You would probably say no. No. I would also say no. But I'd keep the direct debit running. Is that what you're saying about going <laughs> yeah, outside? Yeah, that's that's the only thing right? outside the scope. <laughs> yeah, go. Keep the money rolling in. Um, so that that would be an example of something that's outside the scope of practice. Yeah. The other way that you the other uh, thing that I would refer someone on is like injury stuff mm. if they have a small niggle that you know you've dealt with before or you've had um, clients deal with before that you might be able to fix then you can try that first mm. but if it's something completely unbeknownst to you then you would have to refer on yeah I I have pretty similar answers so specific like the specific circumstance number one like Alex said is injury I actually even when I suspect I know what is wrong tend to refer out because I'm not qualified to confirm my diagnoses or my suspicions. So when somebody complains of something where I'm like, wow, that really sounds like proximal hamstring tendinopathy. Like I've experienced that and seen it in a number of clients. I say, that sounds like blah from what you were describing. And this is what rehab would normally entail. Why don't you go see a physio so we can confirm that diagnosis. They can advise me on what's best for you. So even in that instance where, you know, by stepping outside of my scope, I might be able to correctly identify something. I would much rather somebody else did it and also from a legal perspective, absolutely should have somebody else do it. So always in the case of injury, I refer out, even if I suspect I know what to do. Um, the and it, one that came up today, actually, um, not going to name her because she hasn't made a big news yet, but one of my clients who I adore is, um, is newly pregnant. So she wants to continue training for the duration of her pregnancy, at least until it's advisable that she doesn't. I don't actually know when that is. Luckily, I know a couple of really good pre- and postnatal trainers, so I'll be referring her on for that. Um, for people who have eating disorders or like psychological disorders and things like that, um, absolutely referring on to you know a psychologist and or a dietitian. And in the case of eating disorders, it really is a, it's an intervention on both parts. is really good practice, and I would be doing that as well. Um, and similarly for people who have like mental health conditions or complex health conditions that might impact their training. So um, I, 
I recently had an inquiry from an individual who had multiple sclerosis. Um, another coach is coaching him now, but he's received full medical clearance and he's fine to do it. But in instances like that, um, oftentimes it has implications for how you exercise, and I would much rather see somebody like that off to an exercise physiologist. And other than just the fact that I think it is best f- for the client, I also think it is best for you to be willing to refer out to people, and it's best for you for a couple of reasons. One is that all of the professionals that I, that I have referred people to recently have referred people to me, um, and like I'm not... I'm not doing it I'm not doing it as some type of reciprocal referral system where I'm making money but they recognize that if I can help people I will and if I can't then I won't and so they're comfortable to send people to me because they know I'm going to do what I'm good at and nothing further that's number one so it is usually to your benefit number two is that your clients and their success um, and their opinion of your practice is basically your advertisement for your business and so if somebody is suffering from a problem that you don't confidently think that you can help them with and or falls outside of your scope of practice and so it'll reflect badly on you if you do harm, then absolutely you should refer out because their positive experience of you is not going to be affected by by your inability to deal with the problem that you've said, I'm not qualified to deal with this problem, but here are the things I can help you with adjacent to that. So I really, really think people should be, you should almost be trigger happy in referring out because that way it just, it prevents you accumulating any problems you can't solve. Alex, do you think? Of- yeah, I think a lot of um, PTs who, young PTs who are starting out are hesitant to refer people out because they don't want to lose business. Mm. But it can actually work in the opposite, like you, like you said. Yeah, and the, I think the, the thing that's related to that is that in our industry, it's so hard to differentiate yourself because um, most people who are, who are hiring you aren't enormously informed and they can't really tell the difference between actual expertise and like fake expertise. And so, you know, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that acting like you know everything about everything is going to make you more attractive. But the people who are savvy are going to smell bullshit and the people who aren't, you're not going to be able to help. And so, like I said, you're just not going to accumulate this roster of people where you've done a really good job. And... So yeah, to me, I think it's much, it's much better and more honest to be able to say, hey, I'm really good at X, Y, and Z, not much good at you know A, B, and C, and I'm happy to help you in every respect that I can and where I can't, I'm just going to get somebody else to advise me because I want to do best by you. And most people who hire you are going to really, really respect you saying that as well because they know that you have their best interests at heart. Yeah, and a good way to, a good way to make an example of myself with this is like when I was starting at Fitness First, when they say like, what are your expertise what what are your specialties in fitness and you know you know you'd write like every young pt writes like toning fat loss this that strength olympic lifting everything like literally they'll write like 10 things yeah hey i'm a bodybuilding powerlifting coach who's really good for general fitness sports specific conditioning body composition training general strength flexibility well-being nutritional coaching and mindset and it's like what haven't you covered it's like yeah, um, whereas like now, if I were to do a PT board, it would literally say powerlifting. Yeah, and that would probably do you just fine now, right? Exactly. Because what have you got a good reputation for? Uh, Podcasting. Fat loss? <laughs> Certainly not fat loss. I saw you with your shirt off yesterday. Rude. Um, yeah, very rude. Are you going to fix that by the wedding? No. Okay, good. I'll look better standing next to you then. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Next question, um, this is by, I'm so sorry if I mispronounce your name, one word, 
Talitha Travers. Talitha or Talitha, do you think? I think it's Talitha. I think that's right. Talitha Travers um, says, has your programming changed to suit the one kilogram rule? Do you still program 0.5, e.g. 72.5? So this is for lifters who are competing in world powerlifting or powerlifting Australia. Um, All attempts are in one kilogram increments for that, just like weightlifting. So do you still program the 0.5? Yes, I do. Yeah, me too. Um, My my thoughts behind um, programming haven't changed at all until you get to like the close to competition and you're hitting openers or you're hitting like opener second attempt then we might use the actual specific exact number like 96 kilos instead of you know in the past we would have done 95 mm. but that is only because the actual attempt selection has changed itself mm. um, but I've always kind of used um, weird numbers in programming particularly for female bench press like you know 61 and a half or 61 or 60 and a half um, just because it can be hard to progress in two and a half increments. And I've always encouraged my clients who don't train in um, a powerlifting specific gym where they wouldn't have the tiny plates mm. to buy themselves a set, um, particularly females and particularly for the bench press. But yeah, no, nothing has changed for me. Yeah. I Like Alex, I have the luxury of training people at a gym that does have microplates. And so many of my female clients, their bench will progress in one or one and a half kilo increments on a weekly basis um, because I have the luxury of doing that. But when I train people who are not at that gym, then I always program around two and a half kilo increments just because it's going to be easier for them to actually do it. If they have access to microplates, obviously that changes. Um, but no, I haven't I haven't changed my programming otherwise. I think two and a half kilos is a perfectly reasonable increment for most men in all three lifts in most circumstances. Um, and yeah, for female bench press specifically, maybe that changes. But, you know, again, it depends on what you've got at your disposal. Uh, another one? Yep. What do you, um, okay. I'm so sorry if I get this one wrong as well. We've got Watagi. Watagi? What? Her last name is probably G, as in J-I. And yep. she's playing G. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, can't do nothing to a G. Tupac told me that. Um, is that Tupac? Don't know. I want to know. I think it's ambitions as a rider. Yeah. What a G. Anyway, how do you go about periodizing nutrition to drop weight in a lead up to comp? So we actually did a whole episode on this with Luke Tullick way back in the early 10s or so. I think it was 18. That's a guess. Okay. Um, way back, we did nutritional periodization with Luke Tullick, which literally keywords your whole question, which is sick. Um, my preference, and I haven't changed my opinion on this much since that, my preference is to do the bulk of your body weight changing more than about four or six weeks out from competition and then doing some nip and tuck, like a couple of percent of body weight change in the last little bit is just fine. It's episode 12. Episode 12. 18 was good because they're both multiples of six and multiples of three. And two. And four. Not four. No. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> um, what else? They're not, they're not like cubed numbers or anything, are they? No. Okay. Um. Anyway, yeah. My so my preference is do the like if you have to lose a significant amount of body weight, lose the bulk of it before four to six weeks out. Then be relatively weight stable. If you have to lose a couple of percent of your body weight in the last few weeks, that's fine. Like as in, if you're only losing three kilos for your comp and you're like hundred kilo male, um, doesn't matter. Do it whenever. 
if you're 110 kilos and you're trying to get down to 100, you should be losing like eight of those kilos by six weeks out and then be relatively stable for the rest of it. Um, the rest of that, I don't, I don't know. What do you have to say, Alex? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I like to, I like to have the last at least six weeks um, of the competition prep at the body weight that you're going to cut from, mm. like the week of. Yeah. Um, because those are going to be the, the leverages that you're going to lift with on the platform. So th- that's going to be the time where you're going to be lifting your heaviest weights. So it's probably important for you to be uh, comfortable in with those leverages and moving exactly that way. When you say cut from, by the way, you're talking about like a water cut or something. Yeah, yeah. just food manipulation the week of or just dropping your carbs for a couple of days or doing a water cut. Yeah. Um, something that you can uh, rehydrate back to yeah. by the time you get on the platform. But yeah, if you're the bulk of the fat loss needs to occur like way 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 out like ideally ideally you have the last 10 weeks where you're just maintaining your weight yeah i think like having said that in principle i think that that's good in reality that doesn't always work for people and you have to make trade-offs obviously about when your training is going to be most productive or most affected by losing weight very often it's just a reality that you have to lose a few kilos in the last few weeks leading into comp Again, with reasonably intelligent nutrition, I don't think that that's a huge problem. But I don't think that you should be very aggressively trying to lose weight in the last few weeks leading into comp. If you took one thing away from this, it would basically be do your aggressive weight loss as far out from it as you can. If you have to do some very gradual stuff or some manipulation in the last few weeks, that's okay. But don't do something drastic that's going to make you feel bad, perform worse and not be comfortable in your leverages. Another question, Alex? Favorite non-sport hobbies? This is from M. Harvey. Um, playing music is one. Um, my band's good. Not good enough for Alex's wedding, apparently, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> and I I actually really like surfing. Um, pretty that's bad a, at it. Definitely a sport. It's a hobby. Non-sporting. Favorite it's, non-sport hobbies? I would surfing not is a define, sport. Sur- no, you know what? This is exactly like the you go for a jog, you're not a runner discussion, which we've had, I believe, on air. You can... In fact, here's another one. Cycling. I like riding bikes. That is not a sport. If I just choose to ride my bike down the road, I'm not suddenly fucking Lance Armstrong. I guess that, I guess that makes sense when you're like, I, you consider I drove here, yet I'm not... You're not... Craig Lowndes or whatever his name is. Is that his name? <laughs> no, I think so, yeah. Lounsey. Lounsey. <laughs> yeah (laughs) yeah exactly no and when i surf it's nothing like an (laughs) athletic endeavor it's very prolonged drowning and i've just got a piece of driftwood that's about eight feet long kelly Um, berkman yeah so playing music chiefly um but yeah surfing and just general water sports like i like being in the water in general i like being by the ocean and stuff so those two you and sailing on your yacht i don't sail do have a yacht <laughs> go on Alex um, okay I like stand up comedy I like just being very clear that it's hearing other people not not comedy. personally performing stand up comedy thankfully yeah you, the else. way you I'd speak be like, on the podcast I'd you. be like the, have you seen the Joker yet no I really want to actually okay I won't ruin it's it it's really painful the scene where he does stand up comedy it's like so bad that, that, would, that would be me doing stand up comedy well, the way you talk on this podcast, I was just going to say the amount of times you get completely tongue-tied and just go, it'd be absolutely no hope. That's a terrible impression. Um, yep. So I guess because you said that surfing isn't a sport, I can say I like watching basketball. 
I yeah, I call that a hobby. Like, you, I think you can be a fan of something for a hobby. So that's totally cool. Yeah, uh, I like watching sport. I like listening to stand-up comedy and watching stand-up comedy. You love cosplay too. <laughs> <laughs> if I could think of one hobby that Alex will never do, it's cosplay. You'd be a great furry. I don't know what that is. Uh, you dress up as animals or some shit. Yeah, okay, go on. Uh, what else? Um, I love listening to podcasts, particularly about sport. Yep. And another hobby of mine is playing fantasy basketball, which is also kind of sport, but it's it's nerdy. Yeah, I mean, it's, I still think that's a hobby. It's Basically, you're saying you like being a sporting fan. Yeah, and comedy. Yeah, okay, I can back them. All right, um, next question from Five Trong. This is a troll question. I don't think Alex knows that it's a troll. He asks thoughts on game changers. I haven't seen it yet. Okay, I did put myself through it. The reason I know this is a troll question is because I was talking to Five Trong being JP. I was talking to his girlfriend, Billy, on the weekend about how annoyed I am by people asking me for my thoughts on game changers. Um, and I got annoyed to the degree that I actually watched it so that when they asked me, I could say that I'd watched it when I gave them my thoughts because apparently it invalidates my five years of tertiary education in nutrition when I respond to questions about nutrition about a shitty documentary without having watched said documentary so that I can still think the same things as I thought prior to it. So that is a troll question. All that said, what do I think of it? It was entertaining, but I thought it was shit. Um like where they do have good points and there are some they deliberately misrepresent them to make the consumption of animal products seem unhealthy and were their line generally just that we should be promoting the consumption of vegetables for health and that carbohydrates help fuel performance then i don't think anybody would have a reasonable criticism of the documentary um as it is, they basically yeah try and paint animal products as being like quote unquote bad for you in every respect, which is not the case. Um, and basically say that there's a big meat conspiracy trying to trick us into eating animal products. That's not the case. And saying that veganism is absolutely optimal for health and performance, and that's not the case either. Um, however, yeah, anybody smart would say the diet that you know plant matter predominates would be optimal for health. So if they just said basically we should be eating a whole lot more vegetables than the average person does and I can't believe how much it improved my well-being to eat a whole lot of vegetables and get sufficient carbohydrates in then I'd be giving it a massive tick yeah that's obviously true yeah but apparently I can't have that opinion without spending two hours watching Arnold Schwarzenegger say oh you man eat me <laughs> yeah like, get to the chopper <laughs> <laughs> guys unrelated if you haven't watched Predator <laughs> the musical on YouTube have you seen it Alex no, I haven't is <laughs> so funny oh my god um if you if you you only need to basically know about the movie predator a little bit it's so quotable and so funny to enjoy that but predator the musical is like one of the funniest three minutes or so of your life it is so good it gets the whole plot of predator in three minutes with musical form including arnold schwarzenegger impressions phenomenal highly recommend Anyway, that's my thoughts on Game Changers. You haven't watched it yet? Haven't seen it. Don't waste probably your time. won't. Yeah. And also, this is the other thing. I'm I'm getting questions from like from health professionals and personal trainers who are doing like 6-month certifications in nutrition asking me about Game Changers. I'm like, "Man, like what do you think? Like watch it, you know? You literally you study this stuff, you do it." Like 
people shouldn't have to go to a Netflix documentary that's clearly made with an agenda to get helpful health information. Like there's so many free resources out there that say boring things that you immediately concur with because you're like, oh yeah, that actually just makes good common sense that probably tell you the bulk of what you need to know. And yeah, it just... but the problem is that this stuff is um, viewed by the masses who don't want to look into it any further than watching a Netflix document. That's the issue. Okay, can I just interrupt? This documentary is the first thing they say when this guy starts thinking about plant-based diets is that you know, some um, some scientists did some testing to see the trontium content of bones of gladiators that they found buried at the Colosseum and found that they ate mostly plants, right? Everybody in ancient Rome ate mostly plants. You know why? Because there wasn't like fucking butcheries on every corner with, you know, like meat that's been vac-packed and <laughs> sealed so that it stays fresh. Meat was a luxury that's hard to come by. And there wasn't massively widespread agriculture just leading thousands and thousands of cows to the slaughter to feed people at the time. So gladiators, who were slaves, were going to eat predominantly the diet that was available to other people. And people knew that, you know, pulses and grains and stuff were healthful and energy containing and easy to farm and harvest in really large quantities and store. So that's what they ate. That's not a good basis for sports nutrition. And anybody even remotely intelligent who watches that part of the movie can't be convinced that gladiators adopted veganism because of some rigorous scientific testing where all the gladiators that ate meat died real quick like you can't be that dumb anyway fuck game changers so this vegans are fine but fuck game this was intended as a troll and you just got triggered so you you lose you lost that game (laughs) well done jp all right next question your turn actually can we please answer katie's one yeah yeah. london it's so funny if a steroid user in you wet emoji in you I don't understand that. Are you actually, you don't understand or? What's the wet emoji for? Guys, profanity warning. If a steroid user jizzes in you. Oh, That's why I thought this question was so funny. That's why I was so so confused by this. So I put a number of questions that we were asked aside because they were really puerile and stupid. This one I still think is a bit stupid and it's a bit puerile, but it's so funny that I think we have to answer it. If a steroid user jizzes in you, can you get popped in a drug test at competition? Sorry, but curious. Um, okay, we've already said who asked it, so sorry for ruining your anonymity. Um, that was asked by Katie Blunden. Curious. Um, in all honesty, I don't know, but I'm going to very strongly guess no. Um, yeah, I don't... Is the half-life halved? Like, is the time is the time halved? What do you mean? Like, you know how each drug has a half-life? Yeah. Is it halved by 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 being jizzed in? Like, does that, <laughs> that's that time go cut it half again? No, I'm... What I, Okay, <laughs> what I'm thinking is when you are when you are drug tested, you're either, or for the most part, you're doing like a urine or a blood test, right? So they're looking for metabolites that are present in urine and blood. For the most part, they're not actually looking for the compound itself that they're testing for. They're looking for metabolites of it. Um, in the case of in the case of testosterone itself, they look for testosterone, and I think there are specific chemical markers that they can find on synthetic testosterone. I'm not 100 percent about that, but they look for the actual they look for testosterone itself, or they're looking for for metabolites, right? Um, and those specific metabolites are going to be found in the body fluids that they're testing for. There's no reason for me to assume 
that those specific metabolites are going to also be in um, in ejaculate, although it's possible. And there's also no reason for me to think that if those metabolites were present in ejaculate, that you would then take them up from your vaginal cavity. I'm saying... <laughs> this so scientifically but i'm actually answering the dumbest question there's no reason there's no reason for me to believe that even if some metabolite that would be detected by a drug test was spaffed into your vaginal cavity that you would take it up into Sci- the blood scientific word spaffed <laughs> in enough concentration for you to get a positive drug test and likewise i don't think testosterone like here's another thing Women have very low levels of testosterone as compared to men. I can't believe you're actually you're well, actually deep. Well, let's just think deep about diving this. this. Uh, this is the type of question I love to answer because it makes me try and think about what I already know. Women have very low levels of testosterone as compared to men. If every time a woman had a man spaff <laughs> in her juna, <laughs> um, she got there was like any trace testosterone in the ejaculate that she took up there would be like there would be some type of an acute spike in testosterone associated with having people spaffing you wouldn't there alex is shrugging shoulders saying i don't know i don't know either man i'm not an endocrinologist i'm just saying i don't think there's any reason for you to think that the steroids that somebody else takes or any of the relevant metabolites or the steroid hormone testosterone being ejaculated into you Sorry, I don't think there's any reason that any of them are being ejaculated into you, let alone that you are taking them up, let alone that you would fail a drug test on that basis. That's a pretty, pretty big stretch. But Alberto Contador apparently got clenbuterol in his system from eating beef. So you never know. So did Ryan Anthony. <laughs> um, Ryan Anthony being a, an Australian powerlifter who copped a four-year ban. He actually... I'm pretty sure he tested positive for Chiranabol, not Clembuterol. Yeah, um, but he was claiming that it was in his beef jerky when he went to South Africa. Yeah, well, I actually don't know, like genuinely don't know because like people have used Trenbolone and stuff on racehorses and things. I don't know if oral Chiranabol, which oral Chiranabol being the, the drug of choice of East German athletes um, during the Cold War, um, the one that had crazy androgenizing effects on the women. So they were all like growing facial hair and getting Adam's apples and a whole bunch of them actually transitioned after a while. And there was really, really high documented rates of lesbianism among them, like a whole bunch of things that they thought might be related to just the profound effects of this drug. I have no idea whether people have actually used that on livestock. Can't tell you. Um, so I have no idea how plausible or otherwise that excuse was by Ryan. But anyway, completely different discussion. To answer your question, Katie Blondin? Dunno. Dunno, <laughs> basically. Dunno, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't bet on it. Um, okay. But hey, if you do fail a drug test out there, that could be a legitimate excuse. I might try it. That might be... Sorry, drug might- usage just didn't be... Like, because your butt is very vascular vascularized. So if I ran that, ran that excuse and said, dude, spaffed in my butt, then like they could be like, actually, yeah, he's got a point. Lots of blood vessels in there. Because, like, you can shelve things and get high off them, so there's no reason why you couldn't take a drug that way. All right. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's an interesting one to think about, guys. We'll have to put that one to the Scientific Committee of Weekly Weights. <laughs> Actually, you know what? While we're still on this topic, <laughs> this is the dumbest question. I'm not ready to let it go. This is playing straight into the stereotype 
that chicks only want to sleep with guys who have like steroid like big lean ripped physiques right this is the classic like bodybuilding.com misc incel who thinks that girls won't sleep with him because he doesn't look like Ziz and now there's a chick saying like what are the risks to me of having a guy sleep with me who has been taking steroids right what do you think about that that's just an interesting social commentary I'm not going to comment on that. I'm very uncomfortable right now, Will. (laughs) All right, Alex. Let's ask the next question and then we'll have a break. All right. Good question, though, Katie. Thank you. (laughs) Best exercises to help increase bench arch and best way to know that you're using optimal leg drive. This is from Joe Lee Jr. Well, easily the best bench arch improving exercise that I've ever found can be traced back to The Simpsons when Homer becomes a chiropractor. Um, because he trips over his bin in oh, yeah, the garden. The you remember? And he yeah, cracks yeah, his yeah. back and he feels great. Uh, did you see the arch he gets when he falls over that bin? Yes. Yeah, very good. If you can do that for your bench press. Um, other ones that improve your bench arch, Alex. Um, my number one would just be doing more bench mm-hmm. because I believe that the creating a good bench arch is mostly skill and it takes a lot of practice. Um, obviously, you need a lot, a bit of mobility through your thoracic spine, your hips, your ankles, etc., to get yourself in a good position. But I, I think that just practicing the skill and learning how you can get tight and get your shoulders down and back, um, and get your feet back as far as you can, is probably the best way to do it. I would say more or less what Alex said. General mobility definitely helps. Like you need to have a pretty decent range of dorsiflexion hip extension, general extension ability through your back. And this is probably underappreciated by many, but not by people who listen to or follow Melbourne strength culture, um, which is that you also need you also need sufficient scapular stability, so lower trap and serratus strength, to make sure that even if you do get an upper back arch, your shoulder is actually congruent to your upper back. Because if your shoulder is like hanging away from your upper back a little bit, then you don't get the same scapular positioning benefit that you otherwise would from upper back extension. So, so all of that comes with just general reasonable mobility, or yeah, general reasonable mobility and strength, and practice at arching for bench. I have seen a number of people do drills to help improve their bench arch, um, and I think part of the reason why these ones work is because they actually just highlight to you how arched or otherwise your position is. So one was practicing arching over a half foam roller or a full foam roller. So you remember our friend Tim Davies was doing that for a while in Spexton. That's a not uncommon drill. Likewise, some people lie sideways across a bench and slowly let their hips drop towards the floor just to practice getting their um, their thorax arched. That that type of stuff can help a little bit as well, but you, you then need to actually put that in context and try and bench press. Likewise, I think a bit of upper back work, particularly upper back work where you emphasize maximum thoracic extension at like full scapular attraction can help but it'll only help if you get yourself in the position and bench press because there's lots of people who have actually really good global extension through their spine who are really, really bad at creating a bench arch. And so that comes back down to skill and ability in that position. And on a similar note, just like I said, there's people who have good global extension ability who can't arch very well at all. There are people who you can massively improve their arch literally in one set's time by just showing them how to set up a little bit more effectively. Um, you know, and so yeah, learning where to place your feet, how to slide your shoulders back along the bench and keep your chest high while you unrack, things like that can help enormously if you're struggling to arch. Alex? 
Yeah, I agree. I think one thing that's often overlooked is thoracic rotation. Um, I think if you have a little bit more thoracic rotation, you can unlock a little bit more thoracic extension. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of that, everything that you said, I completely agree with. I think learning the bench arch and learning how to get tight on the bench press is more of a skill than it is like inherent mobility in a human. Yeah. I actually... I'm curious because I know that you you actually really actively work to reduce your clients' range of motion and stuff when they bench and like get them tighter and tighter and get their rack height down and stuff. Like for you, that's a marker of progress. I I don't necessarily see like a really high arch as like an end goal in training people. I see getting a really stable position as being an end goal in training people. And so if I see that somebody isn't retracting or isn't keeping their chest up as they descend or I think they could get tighter, I work them into that position. But I see that as being like something gradual that I'm not really constantly trying to work on. I just say, could their position be tighter right now? If so, push them into it. You, how do you view that? Well, I feel like the greater position that you can get into, the more advantageous position you can get into is probably a tighter position. So there's yeah. there's a overlap there. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think that we will, obviously we want the rib cage as high as we can get it. We want mm. the shoulders back as far as we can get them. And that's going to make our arms shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, and a wider grip's also going to make our arm shorter. Yeah. Um, and I think those kind of, like having a lower rack height and a higher rib cage position, those things are indicative of a tighter setup and a more efficient setup. So I don't, I don't necessarily like try to achieve a bigger arch or, a, um, a lower rack height. I think that's just kind of a byproduct of getting tighter. Right, but again, like the counter example to that might be somebody like, say, Brandon Lilly. Um, remember him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he you know, benched with a pretty flat back and his feet a decent way ahead of him. Huge guy for people who don't know him, like 160, 180 kilos. Like I think he was in the 140 class. You sure? The 308, yeah, I think. I'm not certain of that, but that's okay. I'm like, as in I'm comfortable that he was more than that. But whatever. Point is, really big dude, lies down pretty flat on the bench, Still gets really good shoulder attraction, really stable position. His grip was like moderate width. I'm not necessarily certain that he would have actually been tighter or more stable or stronger with a higher arch necessarily. Um, Like the position that he was in really suited him and the way he bench pressed. And so I think, you know, if you have somebody who is really strong and comfortable with a moderate bench grip and like has his shoulders retracted and some upper back extension, but not like an exorcist arch, um, but that happens to be where they're strong. I'm happy to sort of work with that setup, you know, and get that as tight as I can be before I start thinking like, can we make this person arch more, 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 unless there's reason for me to believe that that will be better. Yeah, I agree in the context of someone who's really large, mm. but how many really large people do I coach? No, not that many. So that's the difference is that lightweight bench presses, and that's 90% of my clients, Yeah, lightweight people, they have big arches, wide grips, low yeah, rack heights, like all the good ones do. Yeah. Um, and it's not that like, you know, I'm not going to compare like coaching Mags to coaching Brandon Lilly because that's ridiculous. She's like a third of his weight. Yeah, that's so true. So it's not exactly a good example. Yeah, I guess that's true. Okay, I agree with you then. Let's take a quick break and we'll come right back. Weekly weights. Welcome back to the Q&80. What's the next question, Will? Excellent question. The last uh, I'll one. do it. I'll do it. Okay. All right. If both of you became under 120s, who would win? How much would Will add to his bench, if anything? 
Oh, okay. Um, this was by Ting Bryan. If we both... I reckon I'd beat you at under 120. A couple of reasons. Been there before. (laughs) (laughs) So, just familiar territory. That's number one. Important. Uh, Number two, I'm bigger than you broadly. Like, I'm a tiny bit taller. So, presumably, if we both got to 120, we'd be about maxed out in just general size. So, you would think that I could carry a tiny bit more weight than you. Um, and so generally I think I would beat you but I don't think it would be by much and if I lost I think it would be because I think it would be because the discrepancy in our bench press might grow I reckon if you were 120 you'd be like a pretty funny little bench monster and you'd be touching on top of your little fat belly because you've already got a little <laughs> pot belly on you and you're only like 85 fuck off <laughs> what do you think I would smoke you at 120 I would smoke you at 120 not the, even close the first reason is because I would bench like I would outbench you by fifty at least. Doesn't matter. You wouldn't even the be able second, to get to the bar to deadlift the with second, your shitty little back the, positioning. The second reason that I would beat you is because you can't even hold on to a bar now. Imagine if your <laughs> fingers became even more sausagey. True. You, you had no hope. <laughs> my biggest strength would become would a weakness. Be, I would be so like I would be so thick in the glutes that my squat would be. I would outscore you. you I would outscore you. I would outbench you. You might out deadlift, deadlift me, but it wouldn't matter. Okay, tell you what, guys. Coming in 2021, weekly weights, 120 showdown. Um, 2021, because it's got all the numbers for 120 and, and just a spare two. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's enough of that. That's rubbish, Alex. I would destroy you. All right, next question. Um, okay, again, presumably happy for us to say your name. Phantom Legions says... Lost period since I started powerlifting training. Thoughts. I actually do have serious thoughts that I want to share. But before I do that, and I'm sorry to have to pick on you for this, this is another thing that annoys me so much is people saying questions as thoughts. In this instance, like questions, sticker, you can't type a whole lot. So that's fine. But generally when you just say something, then thoughts, it's really annoying to me because it doesn't actually indicate what it is that you want somebody to address. Um, so I had a lot of people say to me, Game Changers thoughts. And I was super mad, hence JP hitting us with Game Changers thoughts. But um, but generally, if you say, lost my period since I started powerlifting, what can I do to get it back? Or is that a sign that it's unhealthy? Or, you know, is that normal or something? Then we can answer really specifically. If you just say thoughts, no idea what to answer. So it just seems like a really lazy way of asking the question. That does annoy me. I'm sure that you're so a nice Will, person. So what are your thoughts? first thought is I've had a really nice day generally um had a good breakfast that was good um hot water's been working today at mine which sometimes it doesn't um that's main thought second thought was that I needed a haircut um no thoughts pertaining to the question Alex my only thoughts are that I just that I would smoke you at 120 (laughs) it's just not true um okay now that I've taken the time to crucify you for asking a well-intentioned question um, Phantom Legends. Lost, lost periods since I started powerlifting training. Thoughts. Lo- so, amenorrhea. So, losing your period is... I, I wouldn't ever describe it as normal and I wouldn't describe it as desirable. And I think it's a particularly dangerous thing in physique sports when people almost glorify the fact that they have had an irregular or lost period for a long time when that can be a sign of... Well, it's, well it is a sign of health issues. If you have lost your period since beginning training, then the first thing I would do is go get checked up with a doctor um, 
and establish why that might be the case. Um, relative energy deficiency can be one reason. So if you have lost a whole lot of weight and or started doing very high volumes of exercise, that can be one reason. Though There's a whole bunch of others and it's well outside my area of expertise to tell you what all of them might be or why. But either way, that to me would be a warning sign. And so if one of my clients said, I used to have a very regular period and I've completely lost it now, that would be an indication to me that something might be amiss. Um, Training is something that we should be doing to improve our health and our life overall. And so if you are getting an immediate indication that your health might be suffering, um, and it could well be suffering, um, then I would go get it checked out. Uh, Having said that, and that sounds all quite grim, it might not be the end of the world, might not be the biggest deal, and it might be a relatively quick fix. I don't know, and I can't say, but it's certainly a sign that it's worth going to have it checked out. So that's what I would do first. That's my honest main thought. Alex? Yeah, this is so far out of my scope of practice that I'm I'm not qualified to comment at all. Yeah, when it's just a little bit outside your scope of practice, it's fine though, hey? 100%. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, yeah, that's they're my thoughts. Basically, go get yourself checked out. That's not a great sign. Um, can be bad. Although I will say it's probably unlikely that it's due to powerlifting training. It's probably something else. Uh, that I wouldn't even be necessarily confident to say. It could well be to do with your powerlifting training. Um, so I would go get it checked out. I, like I wouldn't consider it the first, first most likely thing, but go get it checked out. Um, all right. Next question. Yeah. More from Ting Brian. Yeah. How can you avoid comparing yourselves to others and focus on yourself? So before I answer this question, I want to say that he's somebody who we skipped a number of questions by. Some because they were just a bit lame, but also because he just really hypocritically immediately preceded this question with, will there be a day where Will benches more than 140? His bench is dismal. So Brian, you can't have it both ways, mate. You either want to compare yourself to people or you don't want to compare yourself to people. So that's where I'd start. Yeah, you can't just compare yourself to people who you're better than. He's saying he's better than me. I don't know, maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Um, How to stop comparing yourself to other people. I think powerlifting, like, in all fairness, it's a sport. Sports are about comparing people and determining who's better. Um, One of the reasons we like sports is I think that we're attracted to the idea that we can sort of like, you know, see who is dominant or, yeah, basically who is dominant or valuable or interesting and we like to reward we like to re- reward exceptional performance. So powerlifting is a sport where it's you know it's natural to compare yourself to other people. Um, the question is whether you can do that productively and also whether you can do that without losing sight of the reasons that you began. Most, well, I'm not sure most people do, but I think most people should start powerlifting or start any, any just general gym engagement um, with the objective of bettering themselves and learning you know learning things about yourself improving your life and enjoying yourself um and so i think being able to reflect on your own achievements whilst not hiding from the achievements of other people is a really healthy trait um like i can personally see the achievements of people around me so say you know alex's alex's lifting has generally improved there was a time maybe three years ago where I was much comfortably like I was comfortably much stronger than Alex in aggregate whereas now our totals are very close to similar um you know his bench has gone from being a tiny bit better than mine to far outstripping it um I can see those things 
and not be disheartened by my own progress or my own time in the gym, which I very much enjoy and be inspired by it. And likewise, when, you know, my peers who I'm actually in direct competition with, so an example being Matt Bartholomew, boo, you know, he continues to train and get much better, um, better at a rate that surpasses the rate at which I'm improving in spite of already being better than me. And I can enjoy and appreciate his achievements and be inspired by them while still enjoying what I do myself because I'm able to reflect on the things that I've done and what I find valuable about being in the gym. So I think being able to sort of hold those two things as related but separate is probably the first step. Alex? I've got another question for you, Will. What are some, of, what are some ways you can avoid, if you do compare yourself to others, what are some ways you can avoid seeing it in general or, or doing it in general? avoid comparing myself to yeah other what are some ways what are some ways that you can get around that issue well i mean this is really trite but the first most obvious one is just be a total recluse so don't have social media never attend a powerlifting competition train in your own garage don't go outside <laughs> you do that you'll never compare yourself to other people yeah so basically that just like proves what i was about to say which is you can't really avoid it no of course you have not. to be okay with where you are and if you want to be better than someone then you might have to work harder than them mm. and, and you still might not be and you still might not be like that example we gave earlier with with ray williams is like you you're not gonna you're not gonna out squat ray williams anyone listening to this podcast is never gonna out squat ray williams ever full stop unless you're ray williams in which case i hope you bounce yeah. back what's up ray <laughs> yeah what's up dude <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like I, I think it's okay to compare yourselves to others who are close to you or people who you look up to and admire and then in doing that, use that as motivation to sort of help you continue to improve. But if it's if it's only going to get you down and um, and otherwise and demotivate you, then you know maybe follow unfollowing those people on Instagram or taking a break from social media could be a good idea. Yeah, I just think like so, there's a saying. It's some shit like comparison is the thief of all joy or something. And in some ways, it's true, right? But in other ways, I like I really don't hold with it um, because I don't think that other people's successes invalidate mine at all. Um, and I think one of the really good things about powerlifting that Alex and I have Alex and I have mentioned a number of times when we talk about the community is that when you go to a powerlifting competition, um, you know at the very highest level they're contested for medals and people really care who wins and stuff. But for the most part, the atmosphere is one of recognition of other people's achievements, celebrating what other people can do and respecting their efforts and the journey that they're on. And so I think if you participate in powerlifting and you see that attitude being expressed by other people and you feel that way when you watch other competitors at competitions, then you shouldn't, You sh- like it just doesn't appear natural to me to be jealous or disheartened by seeing other people do very well. And where you do find yourself, where you do find yourself comparing yourself to other people, then if you have that, if you have that attitude, then it's likely to be people who are close to you or who are your direct competitors, where feeling like that can spur you on to do good things. And again, if you can just contextualize your own efforts against what you've already achieved and where you came from, then, then there should never be a time for you to be particularly discouraged. That's how I feel. Yeah, I completely agree with that. <laughs> How's that this stand-up terrible. comedy routine going, Alex? <laughs> I've Go written, written a couple of jokes. Yeah, right. <laughs> Next one. All right, this one's for you, Will. Mm-hmm. What is the funniest Burke-related name you've ever been called? And this is from Chrissy. Um, I don't know. Probably, okay, one that was persistently funny, even though it was stupid, 
was Bill Gherkin. And when I... So when I played rugby, um, a whole bunch of people just started rhyming things with Berkman, which is a bit of a stretch. Like, not that many things rhyme with Berkman, which was why it was so funny when people could make one rhyme with it. And... And at some stage, I came to a game having had a haircut and I used to just get a number one all over. And I showed up and somebody said, like, you know, I look bald like a pickle, something, something, gherkin. And everybody cottoned on to the fact that it rhymed with with Berkman, kind of. Loosely, yeah. Very loosely. <laughs> and so I just became Bill Gherkin. And... Um, and suddenly, everybody at North Strikeman Club was calling me the gherkin... And at one stage, we went to Bar Century. Alex, do you remember Bar Century? Yeah, three dollar $3 drinks. Yeah, definitely watered down drinks. Um, we went to Bar Century, which is directly above a subway and a Hungry Jacks in the middle of Sydney City. And somebody went down to Hungry Jacks and bought like four tubs of gherkins or pickles or whatever on dubstep night. And so while like the strobes were flashing on and off and stuff, and you're like seeing people in freeze frames, people just started hurling gherkins at each other and stuff on Bar Century and yelling gherkin and things and so so about 10 of us got kicked out of Bar Century for having a gherkin fight which was inspired by me and then we went downstairs and continued to have a food fight in Subway um, somebody threw a soft serve um, at did, me did it stick? I, I ducked it stuck on an unfortunate member of the public who was sitting behind <laughs> oh, me dear. oh dear so we all had to cut loose and leave but I think Bill Gherkin was probably the funniest that I can think of Alex, next question. Um, I my favorite Burke related nickname is uh, from Thomas Lilly in the online coaching episode. What did he uh, say? He called you Will Nerdman. Oh, that was pretty funny. <laughs> Nerdman, jerkman. All right. Um, John Paul Kauke, aka Five Strong, sends a thousand questions in. Most of them are kind of crappy, but a good one was best place for a hungover feed in Sydney. Alex, you had some thoughts on eating when hungover. Okay, so when I was younger, it always used to be, um, I would always go out with a couple of my mates and stay back in Paddington, mm-hmm. and there was a little cafe called Piccadilly yep. on uh, Oxford Street. Yeah, I've been there. Um, and they have something called the Hangover Cure. Okay. And it's just two fried eggs, buttered toast, baked beans, bacon. I think that's it. And it was literally called the Hangover Cure, and it was perfect to be that plus a Gatorade. Yeah. Spot unreal. on. Now that I'm a bit older, I I am the worst hungover person ever. I'm dead. Um, You're really and, sad until like um, at least midday. I'm so bad. And the only thing I can usually stomach is, is Gatorade. So I just walk across the street to BP. Do you remember at the when we were in Melbourne for the team champs last year and you were lying in bed really hungover and I came into my undies and started hugging you and you were really mad at me. I was very mad. Because yep. <laughs> um, I, even though I feel bad when I'm hungover, I get out of bed at five every morning. I wake up, if I go out on a Sunday till 3.30am, I'll, like as in on a Saturday till 3.30am on Sunday, I will be up at six and I have to get out of bed. I like cannot not. So to me, when I wake up, it's just time to go do stuff and that's how I get rid of a hangover. I don't tend to like having dairy when I'm hungover. So, like, eggs of any description are good. Typically, on a Sunday, I have brunch with a whole bunch of my friends at a place called Maggio's Cafe in Camaray. <clears throat> it's not that it's especially good. It's just where I regularly go. 
but I often get this chicken sandwich on Turkish with like a whole bunch of mayo and avocado and stuff. And on when I'm hungover, I add bacon just for the extra salt. That's pretty good. So Maggio's Cafe is my one. Um, uh, my other go-to is Agalo. Agalo is good. Agalo is so good. I actually think that if you're going to have your hungover meal, you should defer it in the day. Like you have a light breakfast because you're not really feeling like much. Like have eggs on toast or like some Vegemite or something, like not much. And then at like lunchtime, just get a crust pizza or something and you just eat sad pizza until you're done. Put it in the fridge because later you'll want it for dinner and it's just the best. That's yeah, I, I pretty much have crust pizza the night of every time I'm hungover. Yeah, yeah, and so good. Um, JP asked another question. This is actually a good, interesting training one, which is should field-based athletes squat full ROM or is a box squat enough? Alex, you actually coached athletes for a while, so I'd be curious to hear what you did and why. Um, I think this is determined by the individual, not by the exercise. Um, I don't even think that they need to squat at all. There's no there's no exercises that athletes of any sport have to do other than their sport. Mm-hmm. So when we, like, as powerlifting coaches, we look at this and, we, you know, from our lens, we say, like, you know, everyone should squat, everyone should bench, everyone should deadlift because that's the population that we deal with is powerlifters. And obviously they compete in those lifts so they have to do them and they have to get proficient at them. But if you're playing basketball and, you know, you've got terrible control of your pelvis and shitty ankle mobility and your hips hurt. Cause you, and you're seven foot tall. And you're, yeah, 6'10". Like, do you need to squat to get your legs stronger? Probably not. Mm. Could you do single leg? Could you do some single leg work? Could you do lunges? Could you do stuff that's a little bit nicer on your back, a little bit nicer on your knees versus a full range barbell squat? Probably, yes. Um, and the same thing applies to deadlifts. Like, oh, you see a lot of athletes who are built well for field sports or for um, on-court sports, long legs, long arms, really awkward in the gym. They look very strange deadlifting on a normal barbell. So you chuck them on a trap bar and they look fine. Mm. Um, those are like kind of little accommodations that you have to make for the individual. And, you know, you might have a, a basketball player who's my height who can squat fine. What's that, 5'5"? Five, 5'8 five? <laughs> five, and 3 quarters, Will. Okay, sure. <laughs> Um, whereas, five nine when you grow your hair out, right? Well, I used to always say I was five nine, but now I'm a realist and I'm five eight and three quarters. <laughs> okay. Everyone in basketball rounds that rounds the heights up. Oh, okay. You know that the NBA change the rules and they have to measure them with their shoes off now. No, so I didn't all know these that. players are getting inches shaved off them. Dude, you know the the stats for rugby are such bullshit. The way they say, yeah, they're always saying these guys like a hundred kilos. Like good example, calling him out, James O'Connor. Right? He's a big guy. He's not he, that big. Is he like 98 or something? It says he's like 9,800. He's not he, that big. He would be, man. He's not. I shot an ad with him at one stage. I mean, like years ago, he's bulked up a bit since. But he would have been sub 90 kilos, I reckon. Well, like, he's probably weighing in in his boots and everything. Well, that's what I mean. If you're weighing in your boots and full kit and you had breakfast and like, you know, drank three liters of water to weigh more, you're not 98 kilos, you're like 92. But on the field, he's probably 98 kilos. So I, that's his field I weight, right? Doubt. See, I, that's why I have a bit of an issue with like the players not being measured in their shoes because like they're on the court in their shoes. So that's really, that's their height when they're on the court. Well, provided it's standardized, I think it's fine. Like shoes can be how whatever height they want, right? Yeah, but no one's going to wear like six inch heels. You could. <laughs> people playing basketball in like, from somebody, I was going to say if you were completely immobile and all you did was post up wear stilettos wear platforms that'd be so funny um, is your answer basically done for JP? Uh, where, was, where was I? basically that you choose you choose training 
in order to get the desired effect with some eye for the anthropometry of the athlete and how they can actually move and you don't pigeonhole people into lifting a certain weight. Yeah, so basically the the weight room for a the weight room for a field athlete or a court athlete is not their sport. So they don't have to be doing anything specialized. They need to do like a squat, a lunge, a hip hinge, some upper body stuff, some, you know, explosive power stuff, whatever, agility, mm. that kind of stuff. They don't have to do specific exercises. So like it depends on the athlete. I agree entirely with what Alex had to say. If I'm going to presume an athlete is squatting, the considerations about range of motion and whether you squat to a box and stuff would probably be a tiny bit different. Um, One would be that strength adaptations are joint angle specific. And so I know, for instance, there's a few sprinters that train or have trained at Lift Performance Center, um, some of whom do do some quite heavy work to high pins when squatting because they're simulating the knee angles that are similar to when they're actually running. Um, And in that instance, that's a perfectly legitimate exercise for that purpose. And there's other leg work in the program that might take them through a full range of motion and things like that as well. Um, For general strengthening, I reckon there's a really good case, like just general strength and physique development, building resiliency and stuff in the off season. So not doing special preparatory exercises. I think there's a very good case for doing long ranges of motion wherever possible. So with a mind for the things Alex said, because it does reduce the absolute lows that you lift and yeah, gets you strengthening the whole range of motion. But then as things get more specific, you could probably make that change. Likewise, when considering things like squatting to a box for an athlete, it might be that you want them to actually have some, you know, unloaded pause or like an explosive aspect to the ascent that makes squatting to a box advantageous. Um, so for them, that might be a better reason to squat to a box than necessarily because of, you know, the arbitrary depth or otherwise of the box. So things like that are really important. And I think the broad the broad thing that I would say as somebody who doesn't train athletes is that as powerlifting coaches, I think we should be really reticent to think that athletes are powerlifters because like Alex said, they're not, they're athletes and then they just go to the gym to get better at it. And so I think we should be really happy to just make the exercises conform to the needs of the athletes without having the arbitrary rules that we as powerlifters conform to influence those decisions at all. I'm done with that question. Sweet. Um, Okay. Who's the better athlete? Usain Bolt or Eliud Kipchoge? Okay. Just because I'm not certain, is Eliud Kipchoge the guy who just ran that marathon? The two-hour marathon, yeah. yeah, Which is like... 159.40, yeah. That's one of the most amazing athletic achievements of all time. Who is the better athlete? I honestly can't tell you. Like, how long is a piece of string? Do you say the person who is the fastest of all time is better or the person who can sustain the highest speed for a long time of all time? What do you think? Um, yeah, obviously, like, max speed is a part of athleticism, as is aerobic capacity. So, like, they're both at the top of their game. Um, I th- I'm i not sure about Kipchoge's longevity, because I think that's probably the factor here, is, like, they're obviously clearly the best of all time in their given field. Mm-hmm. Um, Usain Bolt won three gold medals for the 100, is that right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know about Kipchoge's history. I'm going to Google it. Can you want to talk for like a minute? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll just pad this. Um, 
I would consider that. I don't think general athletic ability weighs into it. I think it'd be a really shitty argument if somebody said, "Well, Usain Bolt was able to um, was able to be scouted for like professional soccer, um, and his general athletic ability makes him better." I don't think that that's actually an area of interest when you're comparing people in highly specialized sports. And likewise, I don't think the generalizability of their skill sets is important. So I don't think saying, "Well, Usain's sprinting ability would be more useful in other sporting endeavors." is actually a useful way of thinking about it. I just, I don't think either of those arguments hold water. An interesting one that did occur to me though, um, is, is the fact that Kip, is it Kipchoge? Is that Kipchoge, yeah. Yeah. Is that Kipchoge, um, in breaking the two hour barrier, um, it's a bit like breaking the four minute mile barrier. You know how nobody was able to do it. And then a whole bunch of people were able to do it once somebody had, um, he like that, that barrier, is something that people are conscious of the fact that it has never been done and there's really powerful psychology behind that that makes that makes breaking those records very difficult in the same way that having seen that record being broken makes other people realize it's possible and spur themselves to greater achievements um and it's the same as why deception can improve people's lifting performance and why it's been shown to improve people's performance in things like time trials so so there's been some interesting experiments where people have like done a 30 minute um time trial on a on like a an electric bike and then raced against the ghost of their previous time trial and the researchers have deceived them and sped up the ghost by a few percent and they're they're consistently able to hang with or beat the ghost and beat their previous time despite being fatigued um the fact that he was able to do something that nobody else has done which must have been weighing on his mind in the training and in doing it to me makes that a really extraordinary achievement Whereas I think Usain Bolt breaking a world record in in the hundred meters isn't quite the same because you don't have the same time to like ruminate on it when you do it. You literally just execute and it either happens or doesn't. Um, I, yeah, I just there's something qualitatively different about that that to me makes it very impressive. Yeah, I I agree, but I think also the the last thing that you mentioned about Bolt was that it either happens or it doesn't. Mm. That is what makes Bolt the greatest, in my opinion, out of these two. Is that, that he like, can make it happen? He can actually do that. Yeah, and he's the only person in the world. What did he run? Nine five eight. I think. Oh, uh, he might have run a nine five eight at another time, but nine six nine, I believe, is what he won the Olympics with um, at his fastest. He might have run a nine five eight in like a yeah. world championship. Either way, or like um, Bolt has three gold medals in the hundred and three gold medals in the two hundred. Kipchoge has one Olympic gold, one yeah. silver, one bronze. So longevity purposes, Bolt's been the fastest man on earth for at least twelve years. Um, so he probably edges him out and also sprinting's way cooler than running a marathon yeah lame points Kipchoge loses yeah um, but not by much alright another question um, I damn short is this you Alex? <laughs> I damn short asks when do you think an individual is deemed fit and or credible to be a coach? okay so when would you deem an individual is fit and credible to coach other people? Alex? Um, I don't know if there's like there's no sort of um formal qualification that you can get that sort of prepares you for what you're going to do when you actually start coaching. It's more about the experience you have. Mm. So I don't know if there is any markers other than whether someone would pay you to do your job. I think that's probably it. If someone is willing to pay you to provide a service, then you're probably fit enough to provide the service. 
one of the reasons I think personal trainers, when they start, should take on a lot of general clients, even if they're even if they have a reasonably niche interest. Like obviously, provided that you can service them well and all the things that we already said earlier in this episode. One of the reasons I think you should take on a whole lot of general clients is because it gives you a chance to to test your hand, practice doing things, and get respectably good um, at just the general art of being a trainer and getting people results and teaching people stuff. And I think that that's an important that's an important baseline before you even think about coaching people in powerlifting. Um, is that you can actually just generally coach people at all. Um, another another thing related to that is that being willing to do some volunteering or coaching or assistant coaching for free um, is a really good is a really good sort of foundation for your own coaching business as well. Um, so you know when like I would I would show up and assist or you know assist like say Alex or Doug um, our other friend when they were competing and things for quite a while before I ever took on a powerlifting client at their own competition so I had some experience being backstage I'd competed a bit myself um, and then I started training friends some for strength for free before I started um, before I started doing some paid work so by the time I was actually asking people to give me money to be a powerlifting coach I was pretty confident that I could train them in how to lift weights because I'd practiced it with other people general population clients so I had the fundamentals of like, can I get this person to lift weights down? I had some experience of what it's like at a powerlifting comp. So when they paid me to prepare them for one and then take them there and actually run them through things, I knew that I could do a good job of it. So I was confident in myself that I could do a good job. But even at that stage, you know, I mean, one, no world champion was knocking on the door and saying, Will, please coach me. But two, if a world champion had come to me, I probably wouldn't have been comfortable taking them on. Um, so I think if you... If you can accrue just relevant experience and then start, just start getting up some experience coaching people, whether they're beginners, intermediates or what, then people who are, whose abilities are roughly commensurate with your coaching abilities are going to start approaching you. You build up a resume, you'll make some of them better, better people might want to come coach with you and stuff as, as well. And by the time you're actually coaching people where it's going to take a reasonable amount of expertise to make them better you should have accumulated enough experience to feel that you can probably help them. Would you agree with that, Alex? Absolutely. And an interesting um, anecdote is I was training um, an ex-colleague of ours, Derek. Yeah, I remember Derek. For just general strength. Like mm. he came to me, just personal training client. Saw me once a week, gave him a program just for general strength. And then he started seeing the training that you and I were doing and he was like, oh, I want to do, he called at the time, I want to I want to do a power meet. Yeah. And I was like, I was a little bit hesitant because I hadn't coached anyone in powerlifting before, but I did the things that you just said. Like I had been helping people. I had mm. been writing programs. I had been teaching people how to, how to lift. I had competed myself. I had been training in powerlifting myself. I had the requisite experience. So I was like, you know, what? I probably am capable of doing this. Mm. So I guess it took a little bit of self-reflection to kind of dive into it. Yeah. Yeah. But again, like to reiterate my example, you know, like I don't know who like Ray Williams like Derek wasn't Ray Williams that's right he wasn't saying hey I'm the best in the world can you make me better (laughs) he was like hey I want to participate in this thing that you're doing like I'm coming from nothing you've done a bit more than me I already know and trust you can you help me out that's how it's going to start for you so if you're at that level just take some people on practice and be willing to get better and critique yourself and you know don't take on someone you don't think you can help and you'll be fine that's what I think yeah cool Um, okay uh, Brody McNally asks a couple of questions. They're both 
kind of silly. Okay, first one is how does one make it to nationals as a 94 kilogram lifter? Um, qualifying total, ECT, so etc. Um, <laughs> yeah, literally that. You need a qualifying total. Yeah. So you have to compete in the weight class before you can go to nationals. Yep. So you can't compete in the 85s or in the 105s and then uh, qualify for nationals at 94. Um, and you have to um, hit, a, I think, a B grade total or a C grade total. I think it's B. It might even be C now um, because it's a standalone event. It's not a very, it's it, not an yeah, incredibly the, the, imposing total. Yeah, the total that you need to hit, um, especially knowing you, Brody, like you'll, you know, your second warm ups will hit the total. Yeah. Um, yeah, you just have to actually compete in that division and hit the minimum minimum qualifying total, and then just sign up, and that's yeah. it. In previous years, when there were a limited number of entrants, you had to be ranked highly enough to be invited. It was the top what fifty lifters or hundred lifters. Yeah, um, about so, 80, 80 to 100, yeah. Yeah, um, but now if you meet the qualifying total, you can nominate yourself and you can compete. So it shouldn't be too hard. Um, for different federations, that'll be different, but he's asked with reference to Powerlifting Australia um, weight classes. So his other one, this is a bit silly. If you were a car, what car would you be? Alex, just three, two, one answer, just off the top of your head. Three, two, one. That's not off the top of your head. Come on, man. Um... Okay, I would be a white Volkswagen Golf. That's Chrissy's car. No, she's got a Polo. Oh, okay. Why that? Small, box-like, pale. Okay, cool. Relatively efficient. Yep. Okay, interesting. That's about it. Yep. I'd be a big red 1930s Bentley convertible. I don't know why, just like kind of a bit antiquated, interesting, really phallic. Why red? Don't know. Just, (laughs) Just cause. Um. <laughs> all right um this is a, actually this is a kind of cute question um jp again asks what fact about yourself took you the longest to understand or accept uh probably that i was not going to play basketball professionally really yeah really that took you a long time to understand or accept no i'm not really but i don't know i can't think of it like there's nothing like i can't think of like that. a sentimental like deep one nah well, that's lame um a sentimental or deep one <clears throat> actually here's one that sort of this absolutely pertains to lifting culture and gym culture um and this is something we spoke about when we had beck and chrissy on the podcast as well way back in the day too um was that people's people's like of me and respect of me didn't actually have that much to do with how strong i am or how i looked um, and had a lot more to do with who I was the person underneath that and you know certain personality attributes and stuff that I have obviously have contributed to my ability to you know be really good looking and, <laughs> and strong um, no like in all seriousness per- personality attributes and stuff for me have obviously made it easier for me to commit to going to the gym or getting leaner or any of the things I wanted to do in the past but though but it was those traits that are attractive to people more so than the way in which I looked and when I when I did lose a lot of weight um, after high school the difference in the way in which people treated me and spoke to me particularly people who hadn't met me previously um, as opposed to how they did when I was fatter certainly gave me the impression that the the most important thing to make people like you and respect you which is very important when you're a young man sort of coming into adulthood um yeah, it made me think that the most important thing was basically how I looked um, and being in good shape and things like that. 
but I don't think that that is the case. I do think that looking good and presenting yourself well is very, very important. But in reality, if you just happen to be a good person and treat other people well and are confident and comfortable in who you are, then people will respond to that. And, you know, there's a there's a whole lot of gray area in how you look and how healthy you are that you can occupy very happily without changing people's opinion of you at all. That's what I think. That took me a long time to wrap my head around. I, I, I agree with what you said. I initially started lifting for sport purposes so it was never really like for me to like look better to attract girls or whatever Mm. but i did go through that phase where like i wanted like the whole fucking ziz aesthetics shit yeah where like i assumed that that would bring about like you know girls being more attracted to me but it it was very clear that it wasn't the case like it wasn't something that it took a long time to figure out well like i don't think that you know so we were joking the other like last week on the podcast about how my body fat percentage has apparently doubled the past three years rip um no (laughs) not ripped no (laughs) um i like i don't think that that change probably makes any difference to the 99 percent of girls in the world in terms of how attractive they find me um but my ability to look them in the eye, smile, treat them nicely and be confident in myself and do things that are important to me and achieve all do matter. You know what I mean? It's a pity about what's going on in that head. Yeah, yeah. well, that's why I'm getting a haircut this coming Friday. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting a haircut immediately before the staff meeting, so I'm going to come in just looking like so good. Just dapper for the zero girls who will be at the staff meeting. <laughs> yeah, lift performance in a staff meetings. No girls ever attend. It's weird. Um, but I'll be looking very dapper. But yeah... Um, but yes, realizing realizing that um, took me a long time, basically. And and when you realize those things as well, you actually stop doing a lot of the behaviors. Not just this isn't just with reference to picking up girls, which is probably not my forte. Um, <laughs> um, this isn't just with reference to picking up girls. It's in general when you yeah when you realize that it's your behaviors and attitudes and how you treat other people that are more important than than the things that you have on display then you actually stop doing a lot of the behaviors and exhibiting a lot of the attitudes that people don't like um, that cause them to you know treat you other than the way that you would have wanted in the first place. So I think that was a big growing up lesson for me, basically. Um, that's the classic like love yourself story, but not really. Yeah, that. How's anyone else supposed to love you if you don't love yourself first? I don't know how anyone else is supposed to love me generally, to be honest, and I know me best. Neither. Yeah. All right. Um, that's weekly ways for the week. I don't think we should do overrated, underrated. This has been a long. We've episode. got um a few questions about. We'll lump them all together. About oh, this is just about Alex and my fight to the death. You plus mean minus Ace versus Digby? So how many how many questions pertaining to this did we get? Five, I'm just six. Count them all. Hang on. One. Uh, so basically, amongst the questions we got today, there were two, different iterations of three. If Alex and I fought, who would win? If Alex and I fought with Digby and Ace as our teammates, who would win? If Digby and Ace fought, who would win? If Digby and Ace had a deadlift challenge, who would win? Um, And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if it was just me versus Alex, I'd obviously clobber him. But Digby would be a bit of a liability in a fight. And I think if it was me and Digby versus Alex and Ace, then Digby would be out within five seconds. He's an absolute sook. And then I'd have to fend off Alex. And Ace is pretty tenacious. If you've ever played with him, he does not give up easily. And I think that that might just tip the scales in Alex Alex's favor in the group fight. What do you think, Alex? You're so so wrong. 
Like, yeah, obviously I win the group fight. <laughs> that's, oh, I win that's the group correct. fight. So you're already not exhibiting a, okay. a team attitude. Okay. First of all, me versus you is a no contest. You are a coward. We've you've had got this discussion no, on You've before. got no killer instinct. Doesn't matter. You're you softy. I win easily. We can put up a poll. Uh, it's so obvious. Next question was, <sighs> it's final deadlift time. It's neck and neck. Who wins the comp, Ace or Digby? Ace by mile. So if it's neck and neck up to deadlifts, Ace has had a shocker because Ace should be leaving Digby <laughs> Ace should be leaving Digby in his dust he's yeah. obviously one for three on squad and one for three on bench yeah, completely agree um, Ace is obviously Ace is beating Digby in a powerlifting competition and then if it's if it's team if it's team versus team like Ace is better than Digby I'm clearly better than you so like it's not even close I don't, it's just you don't understand like cause I've never flicked the switch around you you just think that there isn't a switch. You don't to flip. have a switch, Will. That's, You're switchless. No, that's what you. That's what you don't realize. Is it just takes extreme amounts to come out of me. I'm not angry. I'm so comfortable in myself. I just spent five minutes saying how much I love myself. I don't need to get angry. Everyone loves me. But you know, God help me if you bloody leave your food in my room after we've recorded this podcast one more time. You'll see the. You'll see the switch flicked. I'm right? You it. won't like I'm, it. I'm gonna do it. You wouldn't do it. I'm gonna leave like. Guys, this might be the last ever episode of Weekly Weights. I'm good. It's glad. I'm glad we made it to 80, right? Because when I come back as a solo host next week, having killed Alex, if everyone sees um, my Instagram story tomorrow and Will has bruises everywhere, you'll you'll know why. If everybody sees a bloody smear on the road in front of my house when they're driving past in the next few days, you'll know why as well. Guys, we do have actually um, we do have two episodes coming up that we've already planned. Um, we had to defer them, which is why this week's a Q and A. So next week, we're going to talk to Luke Tullick um, about fatigue, what it is, what you can do about it. And then the week after, we're going to talk to Daniel Hackett, who um, who was the researcher that I went and participated in a study for recently. And he's he's coming out with two systematic reviews and meta-analyses on the trainability of women. So if you enjoyed our episode with Lyon McDonald, this will be a really interesting follow-up to that. Um, and yeah, with luck, that'll be helpful. Got anything to add, Alex? Nah, just that I'm way better than you. <laughs>